Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. The fans have won already. What a spectacular week of competition we have seen. On this show, it's privateer top fuel racer Jim Maroney and sportsman standout Brad Plord. And there is not a happier human being on planet Earth than the woman in that pro stock car. From top fuel dragsters to stock eliminator, we're on it here. Goodbye, Snake, and hello, Ace. This is the NHRA Insider. And the wildest day in the history of this category is finally complete. Hey, everybody. It's your old pal Brian Loans back with another episode here of the NHRA Insider Podcast. We've been keeping them cranking during the NHRA shutdown, and we have two good guests today. Jim Maroney, privateer, top fuel racer. We're going to talk to him about how drastically his plans have been altered, not just for his season plans, but what he's been doing with his team during this break and downtime. He is one of our, as I mentioned, privateer racers out there, so it's going to be interesting to get his perspective on running a Nitro team or at least trying to during this trying time. And then we have Brad Plore. This is a guy who has won NHRA national events in five different categories, multiple-time winner at the U.S. Nationals, and he has won national events in Stock Eliminator, and he has run national events in a blown alcohol-burning short wheelbase altered as well. Going to talk to him about being one of drag racing's most versatile talents and talk to him a lot about kind of how he has come along and come up in the sport kind of continuing our theme of the last several episodes where we have a professional level racer if you will on one half of the show and we talk to a really cool sportsman standout on the back half guys like uh, will smith we have had luke bagaki on Um, it's been great to have these conversations and really looking forward to speak with brad a little bit later in the show so what's going on in drag racing this week or what has been going on It is kind of like the slowly awakening giant as tracks across the country are beginning to reopen, some with very limited small test days, some with larger style events, Um, as we talked about on the show And we have talked about, you know, really the first headline-making track across the country was Will Carroll's track out there in Ardmore, Oklahoma. They had a bracket race, and they had the largest uh, attendance, as far as racers go, in the history of the racetrack, which has been open since, like, 1954. And 520-some cars showed up. Darlington Dragway has been very busy, and they've been very proactive in getting their track open again. They have been working very hard on uh, maintaining social distancing guidelines and doing all the things that uh, are needed to be done to keep people safe and healthy. As they have been able to illustrate their effectiveness, um, their their officials in in Darlington have allowed them to uh, get a little bit more aggressive with the crowds as far as racers go. I believe they are still spectator-free, but again, last week in a bracket race down there drew hundreds of cars. Tulsa, Oklahoma last weekend, the throwdown in T-Town, which is a big, giant door slammer race. Um, This was a free ticket entry style race. They were limited in how many tickets they were allowed to give out, how many people they were allowed to let in. But it was also shown streamed via the internet, and I can tell you that the audience was big on that one, and I can tell you that the folks in the grandstands, you know, if you look at the photos, they maintained distance, they did all the things they needed to do. And the racers showed up in absolute droves. I mean, huge amounts of race cars there. As far as the car count goes, probably one of the biggest ones of those they've ever had. And guys towed from all over the country to do it. There's some grudge racing that's going to be going on this weekend. And and really, as I mentioned, it's just a slow kind of process here as the, the wheels begin to turn again. 
Local racetracks are opening up. Um, big series. We're not seeing a whole lot of action there yet. Obviously, the NHRA made their announcement last week about restarting this season, the Mellow Yellow season, in that August time frame. We have not gotten any specific race dates released yet. We'll be looking for those over the next couple of weeks as the series officials continue to kind of hammer out exactly what the order of that very aggressive, we're assuming, schedule is going to look like. The PDRA series will be starting without fans. They'll be starting at Galat Motorsports Park down there in North Carolina, an NHRA-sanctioned track. They will be racing again with empty grandstands down there at the end of May, but it's a good sign for them to get going. The NMRA and NMCA series will kick back off again in June, they've announced, at Atlanta Dragway. So it's great to see Atlanta Dragway will be kind of back up and running by then as well. And the NMRA and NMCA series have been basically, as is PDRA, in the same situation as NHRA, just trying to wade through the waters and make the right decisions for their series, for their fans, and for their racers. NMRA and NMCA were planning on racing in late May in St. Louis, or I should say in Madison, Illinois, just across the river from St. Louis, but unfortunately it was not going to happen, so they have uh, changed the date of that event, but Really glad to hear they're going to be getting their series going again in June and glad to hear it's going to be at Atlanta Dragway. Other series that are continuing to kind of fight their way back in as well, you can keep paying attention there. The Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series, there are events scheduled, notably one in Texas for, I believe, next weekend or the weekend after. This would be in very late May, early June. So we'll find out if the Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series can follow in the steps of or follow in lockstep with these other series that are getting themselves going again. It'll be a great day when that happens because it really will signal, um, in my opinion, it really will signal the, the official restart of NHRA drag racing when that Lucas Oil race comes off and people can kind of go, okay, start making those uh, start making those steps ahead. It's just a very difficult situation as, you know, as we all know, basically every state is doing this differently or is handling it differently. So the racetracks in those states have to abide by the rules or they have to figure out ways that they can work with local officials to, uh, I don't want to say amend the rules, but to make everything on the level so they can open up and keep people safe to the requirements of their uh, of their health officials. So it's been amazing to watch how creative a lot of the track operators are. Um, amazing to watch how thoughtful that a lot of these track operators are. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. I mean that in what we've seen places like Worldwide Technology Raceway do in St. Louis by delivering meals and delivering food to local frontline health workers. We've seen so much positive stuff being done by the people in the world of drag racing that it's um, it's really awesome. And it's something that uh, hopefully the legacy of whatever this downtime is turns into the fact that this is a resilient sport that is filled with very smart people who love it very much and who uh, did what they needed to do to, to kind of weather the storm here. Speaking of weathering storms, we're going to be talking to our first guest, Jim Maroney, top fuel drag racer and a guy who we have seen over the years come out in other people's cars. And then we saw him debut his own operation last year, and he had big plans for the 2020 season. We're going to catch up with Jim now to find out exactly how his plans have been altered. And I want to talk to Jim about operating a business in this particular time frame. I want to talk to him about how he has managed to weather the storm with his company. So without further ado, for the first time here in the NHRA Insider Podcast, I welcome Mr. Jim Maroney. Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Beautiful weather today out here in Arizona, at least. We're in the mid-90s. It was hot last week. so 
Yeah, you guys, uh, you guys had the market cornered on heat. I talked to Matt Hartford on last week's show, so it's a couple of Arizona guys in a row <laughs> on meltdown out there. <laughs> uh, you know exactly. I had to go buy me a boat here a couple of weeks ago to keep myself cool and uh, get my need for speed. Nice. So. so you know, one of the things uh, I want to talk to you about a, a multitude of subjects here, but the the first place I want to start with is is really kind of getting some backstory on your career because obviously people know that you race top fuel, but you know I think some people may have think that you just kind of you know landed one day and decided you wanted to race a top fuel dragster and that clearly isn't the case so you know if you can give us a little bit of backstory on you and and how you came up in drag racing and some of the stuff you've driven all right well um i guess drag racing is all i've known my entire life actually my uh my father and my uncle partnered up in a car in the late 60s and um eventually end up running a, a fuel funny car up through the late 70s early 80s and so I've been in the drag races my whole life. Um, me personally, I've, I've dabbled in circle track stuff, turning corners, looking for the finish line to uh, <laughs> to go on drag racing. And uh, everything from my first car was a little super comp altered that I put together, and that was in the uh, early 90s. Um, I progressed from there. We ran fuel altereds. I was on the IHRA uh, tour with fuel altereds. Um, we did that for four years. One year, I actually, that was primarily with my cousin, Ron, and uh, we toured around the country, did a great job, won a couple championships with it. Yeah, I was going to say, you guys um, had a lot of success during a few alter days, man. Yeah. And that, that deal was, I was more the crew chief tuner on that. In 2011, I drove his car as a crew chief and tuner while he drove the Nanook car. And uh, my claim to fame was always uh, winning the Baton Rouge race. As the crew chief tuner and driver, I ran the tables on that deal. So. Old school, man. That's old school. <laughs> exactly. um, so, you know, I've done that. And then the most recently, um, I've been, I was partners with Jim Broom um, in the Candies and Hughes Nostalgia Funny Car. And so I drove that car for the better part of five years. Um, and I hate to say it, but the biggest biggest deal with that was blowing the body off of it at the March meet last year. It did get <laughs> that got a lot of attention, and 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 it's you know it's one of the things that I that I find kind of fascinating about guys like you that have worked your way up through the ranks is that the number of things like you've experienced on a racetrack, whether in a fuel altered or in a top fuel car, or now if we're now we're talking about nostalgia nitro funny car, but it does that sensation of experiencing a motor backfiring and, and chucking the body off it compared to anything else you've ever felt and or come across in your life? No, not really. Uh, I've never looked, stare blank into a, uh, <clears throat> a shotgun before, but that's about <laughs> what it was like. Um, wow. You know, I, I can only imagine now I haven't had a, a body blown off of a big show car in front of me, but I, I can only imagine that'd be the only thing bigger, right? Yeah. Um, standing, ground zero to an explosion um it's quite an experience you know I've, I've been i've had my share of fires i've been through fires and and uh handling the car i, I can't knock on wood I, I haven't crashed a car per se um but fire is kind of the, the one thing that always kind of buggered me a little bit because yeah. i never felt like i was in control you know um, yeah, I mean, you did, you know, the video that uh, of that car, you know, spitting the body off it at the top end, you know, it's, you can tell how violent the explosion is because it basically launches the car off the ground. But you, <laughs> you know, in the seat, you kept the thing, you kept the thing in the lane, you got it stopped, you know, it's, it's, it's always amazing to me, like in drag racing, and it's a tough thing for us to get across to the to the people in the stands. But the amount of stuff that you have to react to as a driver on instinct at speed is ridiculous in these cars. 
Uh, yes, it is very much so. I, when people are asking me about it, I, I tend to explain it kind of like a jet fighter pilot. Um, you know, your brain speeds up to your surroundings <laughs> at some point. Once you start getting comfortable, just like driving down the freeway at 75 miles an hour, and then all of a sudden you're going 55, it feels like you get out and walk. You know, the same type of thing with drag racing, but you have to build up to that. You don't just... I can't imagine somebody getting off the street and buying a top fuel car and try to go run top fuel. <laughs> right. They, they would kill themselves. <laughs> it would be a very uh, bad You just idea. can't do it. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, that's it's been... And even the top fuel car, honestly, the top fuel dragster is easier to drive than the Nostalgia Funny Car. However... There's nothing that compares to the acceleration of the top fuel car. It is unbelievable. Um, you know, when when you're pulling over five G's at 300 feet out on the track, you're pulling more G's at 300 feet than you are at the starting line with the hit of the throttle. Yeah, and that's you know, I have I have no ability. I was a bracket racer for a while. I have no ability to drive a race car, nor do I want to drive a top fuel car. But it's like the one thing I would like to experience is just that what you just mentioned and you know the fact that that car is is pulling harder at 300 400 feet than it is when you hit the throttle because you know again most people in the stands think when you level the gas pedal like that's when you feel it most but at the end of the day it is totally not right it's not and that was an, it's a sensation that i mean people talk about it but i'll be quiet on it. i've driven a lot of cars a lot of different kind of cars and i was not prepared for the acceleration <laughs> i mean i never i've never once thankfully felt like I was not in control of the car. Yeah. However, it was a bigger sensation than I originally had, had thought, you know, I got to thank Terry Haddock for giving me the opportunity a couple of years ago to get in his car and, and get licensed. And, and so we've, we've progressed on now and we've got our own deal and, um, you know, try to do what we can do. Yeah. <laughs> You know the one thing I the one thing I've talked to guys that have driven you know the the modern you know top end you know metal yellow series stuff and the nostalgia stuff is that they say the nostalgia cars have their own type of violence but but the car ends up tailing off by the end of the run whereas in the in the big cars you know on a good pass the thing is just pulling from a to the from the from the second you step on the gas pedal to the end it is unrelenting. Uh, exactly. It, it just it is pulling harder at the top end than the top heel car. Then I think the nostalgia car does the whole way, <laughs> but and it's got so much downforce that when you step off the throttle, the thing decelerates faster than anything I've ever driven. Um, you, you know, t- nostalgia funny cars are a lot like top alcohol cars in the respect that when you step off the throttle, you don't have a lot of downforce, and so the, they're real sketchy out there. They're hard to stop, but you rely on the parachutes more than you do with the big show cars. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense, man. That makes uh, that makes total sense. When you were when you were coming up, you know, when you left the world of circle track racing and really kind of threw yourself into <laughs> drag racing, was uh, was the end goal to get in a top fuel car, or was that simply is this simply something that as you progressed in the sport became made more? I don't want to say sense because nothing about top fuel makes any sense. But uh, <laughs> you know, how did I guess in the short the short question is when you got in that super comp car, the altered back in the day, did you think someday you're going to drive a top fuel dragster? You know, honestly, no. I never thought I, I've never, even up until two years ago, thought I would be an dragster. It would be a funny car, if anything. Gotcha. <laughs> I've always been a front engine person, but um, you know, as a childhood, going growing up, I used to build Lego dragsters and race them down the hallway at my dad's house. You know, sure. So, yeah, it's always been a childhood dream. Um, 
through the IHRA tour thing, I always, like I said, that was my claim to fame was yeah. winning Baton Rouge. Is that, so I honestly, even at that point, I never thought I would get to where I could have the opportunity to run with in the big show. And, um, you know, as a business owner, that's, that is what has allowed me to do that. Yeah, um, and, and that's one of the things I want to get into as well is, you know, your company, American Flowtech, you're in the, you know, you're in the construction, basically construction consulting, right, if I if I were to get That's it. correct. So in in that sense, like construction consulting to me requ- would seem anyway to require like a ton of advanced planning and logistical planning and, and the amount of the amount of work that goes into anything before a shovel moves any dirt would seem to indicate that you are the type of personality that needs to have everything planned out. Very much so. Um, and I've always actually said from my standpoint, you know, I've got an engineering mind. I, I really enjoy turning the knobs, making the car run, driving is icing on the cake. Um, but just to be able to, to understand why something does something. Uh, the old adage of, well, it's got nitro in it, that's why it blew up. Well, I don't, I don't buy that. There's <laughs> The laws yeah. of physics still apply. And so <laughs> yes. I, I, I really enjoy that part of the whole drag racing thing. And that's what I really enjoy about the top fuel car is with nostalgic cars, I've got to the point where I understand everything about them. And yeah, that doesn't make you a perfect tuner, but you understand everything about it and it kind of takes away some of the the excitement for me. Yeah. Cause the, the magic, kind of, some of that magic's gone, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I've got, I've been through uh, a couple different crew chiefs have helped me at this point, Eric Lane and Johnny West, both Johnny's still helping me. Um, you know, I learned something from every day. Um, th- things I didn't know, but now I, I better understand when Eric Lane came on with me last year with, with the car, he came in with an open mind. I told him, look, I want to try this. I want to try that. I know it's not what everybody else is doing, but until you can show me why we can't do this, I want to try it. Sure. Well, ultimately there was a couple of things that I tried that flat out did not work. And he showed me why they didn't work. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a process of exploration as opposed to him sitting there going, what we shouldn't do this. It was like, okay, we will do this and we'll, and we'll look at the results and we'll kind of in a scientific way, let us let the results tell us what, what they need to tell us. That's right. That's right. I, for instance, I run a little different clutch combination than anybody else out there. And, and part of it is because that's what I had to work with and I couldn't justify spending, you know, $20,000 to change something just because. Yeah. So prove to me why this doesn't work. Well, it's still the same clutch situation in the car and we haven't even leaned on it yet. So uh, right now it's still got my own design clutch in it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. I did not know that. That's awesome. So th- those are the kind of things that I, I really enjoy with, with drag racing. It's, it's always been kind of an open, open platform where you can experiment a little bit and, and hopefully stay within the rules to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, you get your, I guess that's where I get my excitement from. Yeah. So. And, and, uh, you know, for selfishly for guys like me and, and those of us that are involved on the, you know, storytelling media side of the sport, you know, a guy like you is, is, you know, the, we, we need a lot more Jim Maroney's in drag racing, <laughs> in my opinion. And that takes away from nobody else. But the, at the end of the day, like a guy like you, that is, you know, self-made, self-motivated, um, out there with a with a great story and and who is hands on. I mean, you are, you know, 
you're in some ways you're a throwback to an era that doesn't exist anymore, but in <laughs> in, in other ways you're a model of an, ex- an era that we need to get more into, right? Absolutely, I I fully agree with you. It would be great to have. Not that I'm opposed to the big teams. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm on the if same. If we had as you more are. independents out there that are, you know, yeah, it's been a dream years. If you got a buck, let's do it. You know, why not? That's that's kind of the way I'm looking at it. Um, can I be competitive with the John Forces and the Don Schumachers? You know, I would like to think that when I show up at the starting line, I got a good as chance, as good a chance of winning that round as anybody else. Now, do I have the backing behind me to do that? Who knows? That's that's for me to know and yeah. the guy in the other lane to find out. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and, and, um, and you know, I think there is still, by and large, there is still on a week to week basis. You know, we can look. I, I wouldn't want to say it over the course of a whole season, but on a week to week basis, there is still that on any given Sunday element to what we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, a question for you. You know, the, obviously, this uh, upcoming schedule whenever the specific schedule is announced it'll be what it is but you know it's been announced that these will be two-day events it'll be two shots to qualify on saturday then we go to we go racing on sunday uh talk to me a little bit about your impressions of that in terms of uh what that hinders or helps you guys to do and i guess in a general sense what are you going to try to do in 2020 having a rough idea of what we're scheduling looking like with you know a million races in a row basically well uh, there's there's a few different questions you asked me there, but <laughs> uh, it's, it remain, remains to be seen as to how the two rounds of qualifying works out for the independent guy like me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've approached Top Fuel with a budget, and if I start exceeding that budget, now we got bigger issues because, like you said, my company supports the Top Fuel operation. Does that make me a hobby racer? Maybe it makes me a hobby racer, but um, the two rounds, I think, is going to somewhat play to my advantage. Um, I think the your big teams are going to have to maybe turn the wick down a little bit to make sure they get down the track, to make sure they make a good run, because the Jim Maroney in the other lane is going to run a 380 if it's on a dirt road. So let's not shoot ourselves in the foot and go out and smoke the tires and not make the show. Um, the other side of that is if they do keep it turned up now, you, how many of those big teams that does, does it, they make all four rounds of qualifying and how many good runs, how many times do you see them make four good runs? Uh, exactly. It's a, that's a fantastic point. And the answer is very rarely. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hoping, and like I said, it remains to be seen that it somewhat plays to my advantage because my goal isn't to be able to go out and run 360s straight up. But I want to go down the track every time. And the guy in the lane next to me is going to have to outrun me to beat me. Um, that wasn't necessarily my adage in Nostalgia Funny Car. <laughs> but, <laughs> but with the, the budget the budget between behind our team right now, that's, that's what we can afford to do. Yeah, and, and and the honest answer to me is, uh, or and I think the thing I like about your answer, I should say, is not just the approach there and the and the mentality, which I think is one hundred percent correct. I actually agree with your logic on on everything you said, but also to me, it's at some point something's got to give, and 
And, you know, it's a, it's not the most popular opinion. I share this opinion with, with Tony Pedragon in the sense that I was one of the guys that was not altogether bothered by the reduction in, in the track prep a couple of years ago, was not overall uh, bothered by some of the changes that were made because as awesome as it is to see these guys going down and, and girls and doing what they're doing with these incredible record-setting runs and verging on the 350s, it really isn't helpful to the long-term health of the sport in my mind. Right. I tend to agree. I wish they would go back to the less pro, but <laughs> yeah, it's another story um, for another day. But in terms exactly. of in, in terms of in terms of what you're going to plan to do, try to do here with uh, with the races that hopefully remain on the schedule, talk to us in general terms about that. Well, the start of the season uh, coming out, we you know we're based out of Phoenix, Arizona, so we're on the West Coast. Our intent was to run all the West Coast races and possibly pick up Indy and then hit St. Louis and Dallas on the way home type sure. thing, which, you know, that, that got us up to, I don't know, 10, 11 races a yeah. year, something like that. And that was, that was my budget going into this year. Obviously that's been turned upside down. So <clears throat> now we know that the latest revised schedule shows possibly going back to Seattle in, in August and uh, Denver the following weekend. And, you know, and, and so right now that's what we're looking at doing. Okay. Um, we probably at this point will not go to Indy like we had talked about doing just because of the time frame between. Yeah. One of the disadvantages that I have as an independent is most of my crew work regular jobs during the week. Uh huh. And so my travel expenses, because I fly those guys in, they don't, they don't, they're on my dime. I fly those guys in to help me for the weekend. I'll pay them, but they get to come to the races for free and I feed them and put them up in a hotel and pay their expenses to help out on the car. And that stacks um, up in a hurry. Yeah. It's, it stacks up in a big hurry. And when you're talking about time off for employees, again, being a business owner, <laughs> my employee came to me and said, you know, for the next seven weeks, I need <laughs> Wednesday through Monday off. <laughs> I'm going to ask my employee where he's looking for a job right. next because <laughs> right. I, <laughs> so I kind of have to look at that with my crew and what my, the availability of my crew is to be able to do it. The last thing I want to do is show up at a track unprepared and, and not have the crew to run the car properly. So if that means we have to skip an event, that means we're going to have to skip an event. Yeah, I give you a lot of credit on that front because how many times you've seen it, I've seen it, and anybody that's been around the sport for a long time has seen guys that just, I mean, throwing caution to the wind is the easiest way to say it. There's a lot more profane ways you can say it, but they don't they don't take anything into account, and they just go 100% full bore face first into this thing, and they flame out. And whether they go broke or they just run out of people to work with, you know, your approach obviously is one that's designed to, to, to make the to make the long haul, so to speak. I, I hope that's the case. That's my goal. And, um, you know, yeah, in a perfect world, I'd have, you know, a four or five million dollar a year sponsorship. And we would all those people that are working full time jobs would work full time job on the top fuel car. Right. Because <laughs> um, they'd all jump at that opportunity to hurt people. But that's not realistic, and so I have to I have to remain within my means. I'm not going to live in the doghouse in a tin shack to go top fuel racing. Um, I've got a budget, and 
the budget is is what we're racing under. So, no, that's cool. I uh, 100% appreciate that, and and certainly uh, I appreciate your approach and and how you're how you're attacking this thing. And yeah, I am I am eternally interested, like everybody else in this sport, to get things going again, and just how how this is going to play out over the. <laughs> for the last couple right. of months of the year is uh, is anybody's guess we always go into like a race day not knowing you know who's going to win the race but we go into whatever this season turns into not knowing how it's going to look from week to week so it's uh it's going to be something in terms of well, your and, and okay, i'm a little i was i was talking with my father today about this and i'm a little nervous about actually going to seattle being the first race back i don't know what to expect i don't know what to expect as far as the crew, what are the requirements we're going to have to abide by to make the event happen? What, you know, yeah. what does this whole picture look like going forward? I don't think anybody knows, but from my standpoint, it'd be nice to actually have it start on the East coast. So I can watch a couple of events happen. <laughs> and work its way expect. back. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll play it out and, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. I'm anxious to go racing. That's all I know. I, you know, my boys race sprint cars here locally. We've got I, my daughter drives a little front engine injected car. We got all kinds of race cars around here, and I haven't been to racetrack in ten weeks. It's killing me. You so. and me both, brother. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> Jim, I appreciate you taking the time today to be on the Insider Podcast. This is a great interview. Great to have a conversation with you. And I think uh, I'm pretty sure you made some new fans with this one today, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Brian. We'll see you at the racetrack, man. Thank you. All right. Bye. All right. After a great conversation with Jim Aroni, we're going to switch over to the world of sportsman drag racing. And I have a guy on the line right now that has won nearly two dozen NHRA national events. He's won in five different categories, won the U.S. Nationals multiple times, and other than that, he's a great guy, too. Brad Plort, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Brian? Not too bad. And I know that uh, you, like all the rest of us, are chomping at the bit to get back at it. But, you know, I wanted to catch up with you this week because I've been really making an effort over the last several shows to talk to to talk to some of the, the guys that run hardcore in the Lucas Oil Series and run hardcore outside of NHRA in the sportsman world. And you're one of those guys. Obviously, you know, the things you've been able to do from stock eliminator to winning the U.S. Nationals in a blown altered, um, all really neat stuff. And the thing I want to start with you in terms of the conversation here is when did you know you were pretty good at this stuff? Because I feel like everybody that's good at something has that moment. When was that for you? Oh, gosh. I mean, when I first started in junior dragsters when I was 12, I kind of got a late start. Um, my parents, we got a, a bare chassis underneath the Christmas tree, and my sister and I had to work up and save money to, to get it complete, you know, and bought a motor. And, but – I was terrible. Like <laughs> I, I had all these idols that I, that I, like I knew what to do, but I just couldn't do it. Like, um, I was very, very good at giving back the stripe a few thousands here and there. And I didn't win a single race in junior dragsters. Um, the only time I won a race was when I won a consolation race. So I lost first round and then I won out of the losers. So that was, that's actually pretty um, cool. It's actually it's a pretty cool thing, that, and not the consolation side of it, but the the fact that you didn't actually ever win in a junior. And I don't, I'm not saying that in a mocking way. I think it's really neat because so often, you know, whether we're talking about a guy like Langdon or Erica or whatever, it just seems like they were falling out of the tree, winning every winning every race they could. So that the fact that you didn't win one, it's that's actually pretty pretty unique. That's cool. 
It's it's definitely different. Um, I think I just took my beatings and <laughs> just learned. Like we we then you know my sister really wasn't into it that much, so she kind of faded out of the deal. And then my mom and dad and myself bought like a Vega and then a Nova, and then just kind of worked our way up. They always made me uh, kind of go in halves on everything and kind of earn it and stuff, and which I'm very thankful for now. Um, but we got a dragster kind of started doing the same stuff. Just won a couple rounds here and there, but just making stupid bonehead mistakes and just trying to be, as we all, all say, trying to be the hero, you know? And, yeah. and, uh, I wasn't that guy at that time. Um, so a couple, you know, a couple bad beats just really get you down. And uh, I, I just kept at it. I, I actually started running my the blue car that I run in stock a lot um, just in the sportsman class out at Seattle and it had a four speed <clears throat> oh that's cool it had a four speed in it yeah it nice. had a four speed and just a 350 it run like 12s low 12s high 11s but sportsman was 13 and slower Okay, so I had to dial at least a 13 flat and I'd drive out there after work on a Friday night or Saturday night and uh, did pretty good. Like basically all I was focused on was hitting the tree, which with a clutch, you know, it was difficult, but yeah. it, it just gave me a lot of discipline. And then it just made me drive the finish line. Cause I was going whatever they, whatever they wanted. I mean, whatever they dialed, I would just dial real close to them and it was fun. And a lot of people weren't real happy uh, <laughs> with me racing that way, but I feel like that's kind of when I started thinking, like, I think I'm, I can kind of do this. Yeah, that's neat. Oh. That it's And it's kind of cool that it came about in that fashion in terms of it was the situation you were in that kind of taught you how to do something that you maybe otherwise wouldn't have learned unless you were put in that exact spot. You know what I mean? Unless you were forced to actually kind of slow the thing down and, and really be hyper aware of your surroundings, that might not have been something that came to you in that way. Well, and another side of it was being on street tires and a, with a with a stick. It just, just there's no way to make it consistent. <laughs> yeah. <just> so <laughs> I just trusted that I had the better light, and I would just roll them through, you know, two three feet, and just take my chances. And I won a lot of races that way. Um, my best streak was three weekends in a row. I won uh, the first two, and then run it up the second one. Holy I mean the third cow. one. That was <laughs> that was my claim to fame. You know, when I was like 19 or something like that. So, and, and but then, it just it just taught me a lot about getting chased and chasing and um, just putting yourself in awkward situations that you had to had to make work. Yeah, and that's and ultimately, I think you know when when we talk to a lot of people in drag racing, it's like you know nobody really has their own nobody has the same path to 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 how they picked up the skills that they have or how they hone the skills that they have. Like for some guys it came in a different way. And, you know, I, I'm guessing, I'm just going to go on a limb here and guess that you're probably the only guy at your level that has, that honed those skills in a four speed Nova on street tires in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was, it is pretty cool going out there on a Wednesday night or Friday night or Saturday night. And Mark Lyle was our starter. Awesome. And, and, and he would always, and you know, he probably wasn't supposed to, but he was, he would always let me, this isn't in that same car. I had got a different car, but he would always let me get in deep. And, and he knew like, you just looked at him and he knew like he wouldn't throw the tree until you were deep. He was just that kind of guy. Cool. Um, and not saying that that was fair or anything. And it wasn't like I took 
took extra time or anything, but he just, he wasn't going to throw the tree till both races were ready. And that was pretty cool. Yeah, that is a, that's an exceptionally cool thing. And, you know, you no longer live in the Seattle area. And I think that may be even a part of this story in and unto itself that people don't really know. So where are you at now that we can hear the birds chirping in the background? It sounds beautiful. (laughs) Sounds like some cows too. I'm out here in Holly Pond, Alabama. Um, met my wife, uh, 10 years ago down here and, uh, moved down here. I, I was living in Indiana, Indiana and Avon for three or four years. I lived with Langdon for a little bit and then I bought a place and then I moved down here. Uh, I want to say I moved from Seattle to Avon maybe when I was like 23. Cool. And, um, so now I'm 37, just been out here ever since and wouldn't, wouldn't change it. Yeah, I mean, listen, it sounds beautiful. I'm, I'm here, like, I hear the birds chirping. It's like, man, this is, this guy's in this beautiful spot down there. Uh, I think, you know, for me, when I look at, you know, your strengths as a racer, when I look at your kind of career accomplishments, I see a guy that is able to um, – I, I, he's, he's able to adapt to situations. You're like the MacGruber of sportsman racing. Like, if you can be handed – you can be handed a, a, a really odd situation, you can get in a car you've never driven before, and you can win, and all you can, you've done it several times. Where does that come from? I mean, where, where do you find that? I don't really know what to attribute it to. I know that when I jump in a new car, you kind of have the different feeling of like you're not in the just same office and you're just like your your senses are heightened because you're you actually have to realize like oh where's the water pump or where's the trans brake button on this car or how's this thing foot brake or I think you're just more focused on like going back to the basics where when you're in a car that you've been in all year everything's just second nature you don't even think about what you're doing and i you know and i don't know if that's it but i'm grateful that i can adapt quickly um because i have had many opportunities to drive people's cars you know and uh turned on wind lights yeah one of your one of your u.s nationals victories came in a, a friend of mine don pyers you drove his nova uh in stock yep. eliminator to win at indy and yep. what i think is cool is i remember I think it was, of course, it was Kevin McKenna for National Dragster that wrote the story. But one of the lines that that stuck out to me when I read the the story he wrote about you is that car had four wheel drum brakes, and you yep. said it was like if not the first, it had been a long time since you had driven a car with four wheel drums. And obviously, if you're going to drive this finish line, you got to be able to use the brakes. So, how many runs did it really take you to pick up on what that car was going to do differently than than what you were used to? That year in Indy was was kind of a funny year. Um, I didn't have a car that could qualify. I've never had a car that could qualify myself. I I can run super comp or super gas, but I've always wanted to run my own car in stock, but just never been able to put all the pieces together. Um, so yeah, Pyres, we're we we've, we've been friends a long, long time. One of my best friends, and uh, we worked it out to where he got it towed out there from a friend of his. Um, named Chick Ross. I'm sure you know Chick. Yeah, Chick was a spectacular yep. man. Yeah. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Um, but yeah, uh, first run, I was like, oh my gosh, these brakes are just like <laughs> not there. Mashed potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I don't even know what happened on the first run, and we had to try to qualify. We were, I don't think we were in until the last run because one of my runs, I think I got, well, I think I might have been like five pounds light or. Uh, yeah. something you know and we just I was like dang we really but then so you're all out in qualifying then you go in first round 
I didn't drive particularly well that weekend. I was subpar on the tree, um, just drove well enough to get by. And then I finally started figuring it out. And one of the times the opponent went red and I thought, I gotta, I gotta see how much I can kill down here. So I did not kill like nothing. And I was like, <laughs> Holy crap, this is, this is not going to work. And you know, if I want to, you know, do something down there. So I, I just, from then on, I knew like, okay, you've just got to start. You got to hit the brakes earlier. Yeah, six hundred feet. Nec- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not exactly jam them, but you know, you just got to do it earlier. It's all four <laughs> shoes are trying to lock up into them drums, and it just took a while. But they work. You just have to be early. Yeah, it's a it's a neat thing, and in, in the you know, it's the mechanical end of this stuff. I think is is so interesting, and especially when you have to like the mechanical end of making horsepower and stuff is one thing, but the mechanical end of the car and how you interact with it is really what fascinates me. And especially with guys like you that are so good um, at index style or dial style drag racing, because it does require an intimate knowledge of the equipment you're sitting in. Right. I mean, like you said, you had to, you had to basically work your way around those brakes and figure them out. Um, You know, it's, it's that to me is, it's just an innate ability that, that some people have. I don't, and I never will even come close to having it. So I, it fascinates me watching guys like you. What is uh, – and I, I got a bunch of different questions, but for you, what is your favorite car that uh, that you've competed in, or what's your favorite car you've won in so far? Uh, definitely my Nova, my Chevy – my 66 Chevy 2. Um, drove it senior in high school um, and drove it to college. Uh started racing in it it's just it's just like my first love you know and i still have it today and i will forever um i when i finally converted it to stock my first national event win in it was when i doubled at seattle um and it was just like gosh how how awesome is this at home you know i wasn't living there but all all my friends and family were there katie was there um just a great a great weekend to be able to double and to do it in that car and then i won brainerd two weeks later which was it it didn't even barely run the index but just (laughs) just figured it out and got lucky yeah that's uh the the seattle story is phenomenal i mean it's like that's right out of a book you know it's like it It is yeah that's that's that would be my my favorite car by far um there's been several others that i've that i've drove over the years that i've loved but that one's so close to us. Uh, my son Paxton will probably make his first trip down the track in that thing, if yeah. it's not a junior before that. <laughs> so so cool. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your dad's background in drag racing because he was a racer, correct? Yes. Yep. Yeah, he won the. Uh, he used to got the sniffles out here. Um, he ran Super Comp when I was, you know, six eight years old. I was the kid in the back of the dually, the crew cab that would <laughs> nice. just collapse on the floor when he lost i'm talking just <laughs> full out sob story right throw the rods out every time the wind light didn't come on yeah <laughs> oh gosh just awful i'm feel bad for my mom who was towing us but um yeah i think he finished eighth in the country one year in super comp and then uh he wanted to run blown alcohol so he bought um pieced together a blown alcohol dragster to run top alcohol in, and then he actually won the 92 winter nationals uh, won several divisionals, um, had a lot of fun. We, it taught me a lot of stuff, you know, which he's taught me pretty much everything I know about mechanics. He's just one of those guys that can just fix or do anything just 
he's just very smart. But um, to be able to see him win the Winter Nationals was awesome. He, uh, we weren't there. We, me and my sister were were at home with some friends, but and of course there was no NHRA TV, so we weren't even. <laughs> we'd have to wait for a phone call. You know, you had to call the old Dave McLeod line to hear that your dad won. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he and he's still very active in it. Um, he's actually building a top dragster right now he's ran top drags for the last couple of years and he he just bought another car so yeah that's uh it's a cool thing and and it segues me into the into the next part of this conversation I wanted to have and i hope you're not tired of talking about it because I, I i love i love the image of it i love the fact that you have had such success in it and that you continue to have and that's that's the altar that you've been driving the last couple of yep. seasons in comp eliminator um it it to me it just adds such another dimension and it and it it continues to reinforce how talented you are to watch you handle that race car, which is so different than anything else you ever drove. So a couple of things here. Talk to me about driving that car and in relation to your dad too. It's, it's got to give you a little bit of pride because obviously he's a blown alcohol guy and now you've got, uh, you've got a U.S. Nationals win in that car among others. Yeah. I mean, first of all, thank you. Uh, I mean, I appreciate the words. It's, it's a, uh, handful for sure. Um, those guys, Harry, Sean, Robert, Rodney, those guys make that thing go straight, and they make it go down the track every time. These these uh, opponents of ours, they know, like, you know, typically if you were running up against a blown car in comp or a pro mod or something, you're like, you know, this this should be an easy win, yeah. you know, just <laughs> yeah. make a decent run. And But they know, or at least they should know by now that uh, – we're going to be there at the finish line and uh and it's just a credit to those guys they they buy all the best parts give me the the best opportunity to do what i can do in the car and uh my dad's super super proud of uh what we've accomplished and um he loves the car he used to have he actually ran the same combination in a comp car oh cool uh we built in our garage when i still lived in seattle he um same deal and it's just funny how it all kind of came around where i started driving one yeah it really is and you know a question obviously comp eliminator is the first of the finish line category we know all that stuff but there's also a great strategic value in not being too too far out when you get to the finish line so i guess taking this back to your nights uh beating up on the competition in seattle <laughs> and your nova you know do you ever have to employ that tactic because obviously the car is so fast typically in my yeah. in my mind it's it it's more of a conservation effort on your part to not really blow up an index, right? It really is. It's, uh, there's races where we, where we aren't as fast as we would like. Um, and that's just for a variety of reasons. It's, it's, you know, okay, we change this and we freshen the blower up or we change the overdrive. Well, that changes the whole complete tune up. This isn't like a top fuel car where they, you know, they have, millions of laps and data and and they and they're all their blowers are the same we we don't we we have one blower we run and when we put a fresh one on the first of the weekend we have to kind of be conservative um but that's where sean brown comes in he's he's the tuner he's from calgary and uh he just he makes it happen you know um it's so there is some weekends where we're not as fast as we could be but we're still raceable um but yeah most of the time we're we're up at the top of the sheet and then it's just conserving and and then it's 
as you know, it's just there's so much luck involved in comp, and it doesn't even have to do with who you're racing that moment. It's, <laughs> right. It could be the guy that you raced third round that you're yeah. looking at. It's, yes. Yeah. It's, it's where you qualify and who you run first round. And then, you know, my biggest thing is I want to get through first round clean if we're on the top half, which sometimes the fields are so fast it's really hard. Yeah. But if you if you do your job, you know, you can get through – halfway decent first round and then it sets you up the rest of the weekend is um, there is but I, there, I don't want to be 120 on the tree and, and right. have to go 57 under you know that would be bad that's bad math yeah that's what we call that is yes. bad math is there any similarity in is there any similarity in reading um a comp a comp eliminator ladder as there is in a stock eliminator ladder when you're when you're trying to keep an eye out for potential heads up matchups anything like that is there does it, either of that does that translate at all it really does. Um, it's they're both sportsman ladders. So, like, if there's a 32 car field, number one does not run 32; they run 17, and then two runs 18, three runs nine, etc. So, it's not always the best to qualify number one. Um, the only time I like to go for number one is you're going to get the first available buy, no matter what. Yeah. So, but I've, I've I've actually come down to it where I don't even want the first round buy. It's like it's hard to like a lot of people probably think we're cocky or whatever, but I don't want, I want to earn something to get to the buy. And sure. you know, if there's 31 and there's only going to be one buy the whole race, then yeah, we'll get it. Or, you know, we'll attempt to try to get number one. But if, if there's going to be a buy every round, which there's a lot of buys in comp because you know, there's typically 17 to 25 cars. So there's just a lot of buys. You just, I would rather have it in the semis or, um, so there's strategy that way too. And then of course you want to stay away from certain people that you know are not only fast, but they, they can drive good and save their index. Yeah. Yeah. And it's... you don't want to, you don't want to have somebody in the third round that's clean. So, <laughs> right. Cause they can spend some and then, yeah, then you go, yep. yeah, exactly. But that, that goes back to just the luck thing. It's, uh, you know, if, if they've got two red lights going into third round, there's nothing you could have done. Anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, if they're living a charmed life, then uh, yeah, you just don't want to be victim number three, I guess, yeah. at that point. <laughs> How, um, I guess, you know, I had Luke Bagaki on a week or two ago, and, and you know, to me, Luke is like a, a Yoda type of guy, right? He's got to me a lot of a lot of philosophical, mental uh, side of stuff that it's fun to talk to him about because he's yep. that's kind of who he is and, and his, I guess, strength, let's say. Do you race that same way, and I mean that in the in the cerebral way, or are you more of a see the light, react to the light, see the stripe, react to the stripe guy? I wish I was more like Luke. Um, <laughs> he he's one of my good friends, and and he's taken it to a whole nother level. He and I listened to the podcast; he was great. Um, Luke is just he is so smart on the sport, and I feel like I'm smart as well. But I don't do the homework he does. I don't put in the work as far as like studying my opponents, sure. studying my runs. I just, I've always been kind of known as like, I just go up there and kind of wing it. And sometimes that works, of course, but sometimes it doesn't. And then you think like, dang it, why didn't you, you know, look at your numbers a little closer and try to dial it a little closer. I don't know. It, he's, he's got that down. I, I actually drove his car, his wife's car at Indy last year. And it was really, um, it was a joy to drive for him because he just told me like, okay, you put this number in, you're going 886. <laughs> and it's like, wow. Like I, I'm just not that kind of 
preparer and yeah. and he's he'll spend hours before we run doing that and uh which you you know you really need to do that with the racing we're due because we haven't run for 24 hours or 36 hours so it's it, obviously when you go right back up there you don't have to do the homework as much but when you've been sitting around and the weather's completely different then you really need to do your homework yeah and i think also it's like you know approach wise different things suit different people and you know it's one of those things where if i think if if you try to force yourself into a method like luke uses you're going to harm your program if luke tries to force himself into a method that you use it's probably going to harm your program so you know it's it it does it's just to me it's cool that you have two guys like you said you know more you're more i don't say wing it but you're more of an extemporaneous type and you have all this success, and he is uh, opposite of the spectrum. That's how he finds his success. It's pretty fascinating. Yep. It is. It's it's just a crazy sport that, um, it's it, you know it's one of the things you try to explain to your friend. Like <laughs> anybody can beat you anytime, <laughs> and that's what's just so fascinating about the sport. Um, you just try to do the best you can and hope that your wind light turns on, and and sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. You're just along for the ride. That's a fact. Now, one question I wanted to ask you, because I discussed this with Luke as well, is uh, we are going to see a window of races in this in this fall time frame where there will be millions of dollars being contested over the span of like a month at uh, just a handful of different races. What is your thought process in that in that time frame? Are you planning on competing in any and all of them? What's your what's your outlook here? As of right now, I I'm waiting to hear what the Lucas oil series is doing as far as are we running for points? Is there going to be a champion? Gotcha. Like there's nothing been said about that. And I, and I, and I understand why, um, until that happens, I can't really plan it. Like, yeah, if, if I'm all, if, if I'm not running the comp car and, and you know, if, if we're not running for the championship at that point, then yeah, I'll be at Memphis and I'll be at, uh, the SFG million. Um, if, if everything lines up and I can, and then another huge one is, uh, Jared Pennington's, yes. um, footbreak 100, the Labor Day 100K, which I'm super excited about, but that's the weekend of Indy. Yeah. <laughs> so that's just another thing. It's like, if we're not running for points or if we aren't really in contention, then I'll probably be in Bristol rather than Indy, um, sitting around for four or five days trying to win x amount when you could go to bristol and run for 100 grand oh no that's uh <laughs> yeah that's that is not the most difficult math in the world <laughs> no it's just business i mean yeah. i would love to go to indy and you know i, I love it oh. I, I mean i want to win more but you got to go where yeah, where you, you can get pay paid. house payment yeah yep and you know i'll ask i asked jim maroney the same question i'll ask you and when you were that 19 year old kid knocking down some wind lights, uh, at Seattle on a, you know, mid midweek night, did you ever think about the fact that you would one day be trying to consider whether you'd be racing at Indy or for a hundred grand somewhere else? <laughs> <laughs> Not even close. I mean, I dreamed about running at Indy, you know, uh, read about it, watched it, just had all my idols, you know, um, Peter, Dan, uh, just all the heroes of our sport, Rampy. Um, and that's, yeah, I mean, I just never thought, especially in foot break, um, it's just pre-stage, bring up bring up your RPM to wherever you want to leave at and swap feet. No no delay box, no anything, except a, maybe an electric shift is legal. That's it. And uh, it's going to be cool. Yeah. So we'll see. 
Well, Brad, I appreciate you taking the time, man. I know that uh, you got the little guy running around the house there, and uh, I'm going to miss hearing the birds chirping in the background. But this conversation has <laughs> been fun, man. I, I really do appreciate the time, and um, from a from a from my heart to yours, I respect your talent immensely. It's very fun to watch you race, and I uh, look forward to hopefully doing it sooner rather than later again here in 2020. I hope so, Brian. I uh, I appreciate you uh, calling me and reaching out. It's uh, very cool. I love what you're doing, and I love the uh, podcast you do. Thank you very much, man. Hey, Brad, be good. Enjoy the family for a little while, and uh, let's burn some rubber down the road. Thanks, man. See ya. Thanks. And so another edition of the NHRA Insider Podcast comes to a close. Two great guys. I think two cool interviews. A lot of insight there from Jim Maroney and a lot of insight from Brad Plord. And uh, really liking the fact that we've been able to uh, bring some of the real premier hardcore sportsman racers uh, into the four here over the last several weeks on the NHRA Insider Podcast, and I will continue to do that over the coming weeks as well. These guys and girls have great stories to tell, great backstories, and their talent is almost beyond measure. I hope you're staying safe out there with your friends and family. Hopefully you're getting your hot rod tuned up, and I am assuming that we're going to be hearing some news on the NHRA schedule fronts for both the Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series, Mellow Yellow Drag Racing Series, Pro Modified Series, Pro Stock Motorcycle, and the Mickey Thompson Top Fuel Harley-Davidsons in the near-term future. Be good, be safe, and we'll see you next week right back here on the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans.